What's the role of journalism in a democratic society? The idea that the press, that journalists in the United States are the enemy of the people is a scurrilous falsehood that, of course, plays on uh, rhetoric that was used by Adolf Hitler and others to discredit uh, the press in Germany as the Nazi party was coming to power. So we have to be very careful of uh, blanket critiques that villainize the press, even as Project Censored does, we try to provide a critical perspective on what the corporate news media do and fail to do. But that critique is different from a kind of Donald Trump critique because ours, our critiques are grounded in evidence and decades of media and uh, social scientific theory about how journalism works and its role in a democratic society. That's Andy Lee Roth. Later in the show, we talk with him about Project Censored's yearbook, State of the Free Press 2024. But first, we talk with Charles Berber about the book he co-wrote, Dying for Capitalism, How Big Money Fuels Extinction and What We Can Do About It. That's all coming up on today's Writer's Voice, in-depth conversation with writers of all genres, on the air since 2004. Thanks for joining us this hour on this station and at writersvoice.net. I'm Francesca Rhiannon. It's the triangle of extinction, capitalism, environmental destruction, and militarism. In their book, Dying for Capitalism, authors Charles Derber and Surin Mudliar argue that these systems cannot sustain life on our planet. That's because capitalism's drive for infinite growth is unsustainable on a finite planet. Capitalism seems intractable. How could it ever end or be transformed? But instead of throwing up their hands to say, we're all doomed, Derber and Mudliar say that fundamental change has often been called impossible until it happened. Slavery in the U.S. seemed to be eternal, until a broad-based movement for abolition ended it. In the following conversation, Gerber tells us the solutions offered by capitalism, like green technology, are necessary, but wholly insufficient. What we need, he says, is an international, multi-ethnic, multi-racial movement of democracy and solidarity. Charles Derber teaches sociology at Boston College. Surin Mudliar is the editor of the journal Socialism and Democracy. Charles Derber, welcome to Writer's Voice. Thank you. Good to be here, Francesca. Dying for Capitalism, you wrote this book with Surin Mudliar, and I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing... Yeah, you are. He's an interesting guy. He's a South African who grew up in a family very close to the Mandela household. His father was an ANC activist. And uh, we have a chapter in the book about abolitionism and the lessons of abolitionism for uh, the struggles we're talking about in um, against extinction and in the, the subject of dying for capitalism. We have the tools today to get to zero emissions by 2030. I recently spoke with the climate scientist Michael Mann, and he reiterated that point, actually, by 2030, not even by 2050. But dying for capitalism challenges the idea that green technology within capitalism, that is a kind of green capitalism, 
can prevent disaster. Why? Francesca, I'm really glad you highlighted that question because it just is really an important question. And it it's a question that is important because technology and faith in technology has always been a kind of guiding spirit of American leadership, mainstream American conversation. That is, Americans have learned from their corporate leaders and their political leaders that the solution to all of our social, deep social, environmental, political problems rest with technology. And that kind of technophilia, let's call it, you know, love of technology and the view that problems arise from technology and can be solved by technology is particularly dangerous politically because it leads people to feel that it's not the social, economic, political, cultural systems that are driving our problems. It's that we're just not using the right technology to organize our society. So in the climate, an example you give, I think this has become a kind of really dangerous myth enshrined in in much of the, even among the groups of people who are aware of climate change and want to see it stop as soon as possible. And that's the idea that if we simply could do anything from buy electric cars or shift the grid over toward green energy, toward you know non-fossil fuels, that this is going not only to um, stop climate change, but stop it quickly and solve this problem. And so let me just say a couple of things about this. One is that I'm not dismissing the importance of technology. Technology is important. I'm all for intensified technological you know, shifts away from fossil fuel. In the book, in fact, there's an interesting historical dialogue about how capitalism came to be linked to fossil fuels. When early British industrialists in the 19th century, period when Charles Dickens was writing about you know, epidemics and had bad health, part of this book is also about uh, epidemics and other kinds of public health catastrophes. But capitalism emerged originally with the possibility in, in London and then began early factories in England with water power and you know, the, the steam engines powered by water were efficient, but the industrialists came to believe that water would be too easily seen as a public good and therefore might not be subject to their control as the public mobilized to sort of maintain, you know, supplies of, of water at reasonable prices for themselves. So they shifted over to coal and then by the mid-19th century in Britain and Europe, coal was becoming a dominant force. But then two things happened. One is coal proved to be dangerous for industrialists, not technologically, but for organizing reasons. When you put a bunch of people in coal mines, they work under difficult, long conditions close together. And so coal miners have a long history of organizing um, against um, their work problems. And the, the early industrialists began to worry that reliance on coal would build a labor force that would be rebellious. And so that combined in the United States and then later in Europe, particularly in World War I, with a second factor, which was 
the rise of military uh, of, of wars, like I'm thinking particularly of World War One, where the demand for oil became very intense because war, there were the first aviation and much of the nature of technology that was required in World War One was required large amounts of oil. And this was after, you know, Rockefeller in the 1890s had sort of begun the oil revolution. So capitalism moved from water to coal to oil and gas. And there were a combination of factors that were not technological, but more social and political that led to these changes in energy and technology grid. All of which to say is that, you know, the technology and the particular kind of energy that we use is heavily mediated by and determined by political and power issues as much as by technical efficiency. Even if you were able to move with electric cars and make a, a great amount of movement toward non-fossil fuels, we would still have a massive, that would be, of course, incredibly great and powerful to have uh, a drastic revolutionary shift toward non-fossil fuel energies. But in a capitalist society, let's say we do this and we, we embrace what people like, like Bill Gates will call green capitalism. And, you know, people like Gates argue this is the solution. Capitalism is not the problem, as we argue in this book. It's the solution because capitalism is the most presumably technologically innovative system. And therefore, it can more quickly shift the technology toward a sustainable kind of technology. The other thing is that even if um, you had a highly activist climate Democrat pushing toward massive amounts of green energy, you know, solar and wind technology and so forth, all of which would be good, it wouldn't solve the problem altogether because capitalism creates, what it, capitalism is a system of basically selling everything on the market for profit. That's what capitalism is. It's a system that says everything is for sale and small numbers of people have the power and the money that are driving this system. So even if you're using non, you know, moving toward a much stronger mix of green energy, non-fossil fuel, there's never been a stable model of capitalism that is a non-growth, material non-growth model of capitalism that's been proved to, to be possible. So one of the nature that we discuss in the book is simply that capitalism is a a system basically pursuing infinite growth, infinite production for, for sale on the market um, on a finite planet. You know, this, there's only one planet. There are a finite number of resources, a finite amount of land. And the resources, even if you're using green energy for a, a, a lot more of production, the nature of the economic and social system that we're living under would in our judgment, lead to a level of material production and expansion into more and more and more areas of uninhabitable, currently uninhabitable land. About half the world, I think right now, is uninhabitable because industry has chosen not to try to pursue it at this time, whether we're talking about large amounts of the Amazon or capitalism is not happy, you know, living in a system of uh, limited growth. It always wants to take off the brake to sort of put the pedal to the metal 
and speed production as far and as fast as it can. And if it does that, it's going to consume too much of the planet. Over the longer term, the demands of infinite production, you know, capitalism, a system that makes people kind of addicted to consumption and mass consumerism. Um, you know, the very first chapter of Karl Marx's famous book on, on capitalism called Das Kapital was called The Fetishism of Commodities. You know, he was also saying that in capitalism, commodities, things we buy, the stuff that fills our closets and our homes, becomes essentially eroticized. You know, fetishism is a kind of like a sexual addiction in which people simply can't be happy unless they're consuming more and more. And if you're consuming more and more as sort of your dominant cultural value and the dominant economic fuel of the system, even if you're using green energy, you're going to exhaust the resources of the planet. And we also know from electric cars already and from wind turbines and so forth that there's a lot of carbon emissions that can emerge as you're trying to use these non-carbon forces. It just takes a lot of other kinds of rare minerals and production and transportation to get you know, these wind turbines and these electric cars or solar panels, you know, going on a massive scale. Yes. And, and I think I completely agree with your larger point. I have to say, Capital is probably my favorite book. And fetishism, um, uh, the fetishism of commodities is an absolutely central concept. And I want to circle back to that. But I do want to point out, because there has been a lot of, I think, manipulation of the left on the issue of, you know, the carbon emissions embodied in clean energy. It's a lot less Number one. And number two, there are real drives for recycling of all of these materials so that the actual consumption will be far less, which is different than fossil fuels, which is something you have to burn continuously in order to have the machinery operate. But let's get back to the fetishism of commodities. I mean... <laughs> We have it on steroids, of course. The social media drives it. I was just listening to something the other day about how how bad furniture has gotten because people are just, it's kind of fast fashion of furniture mm -hmm. um, because people want to have the latest styles I see on Instagram. So how do you re-educate people in a way that doesn't uh, incite their resistance and their rage? And we are talking with Charles Derber about the book he co-authored with Søren Mudliar, Dying for Capitalism. Well, just before I talk that, let me just recycle back, if we could, to the basic argument of the book. Um, if we had a picture, it would be the picture that you've seen, Francesca, of the what I call the triangle of extinction, which is like a triangle with capitalism at the top and then aerials of causation going toward down toward environmental death and destruction on one side and down toward military death and destruction on the other side, and then linking at the bottom causal arrows, war and militarism are major forces driving climate change, and climate change is a major force driving uh, militarism. In fact, the Pentagon, which is legally required to, to tell the American people what are major national security threats for the last few years, has written that climate change is the number one threat to national security in the United States. What they don't say is that the 
biggest emitter of carbon in the world, the biggest institutional emitter of carbon in the world is, is the Pentagon, which emits more carbon every year than any other institution in the world. So much of this book is an attempt to basically make as clear and simple and historically grounded as possible this the nature of this triangle, which sort of shows the interlinkage between capitalism, which is a sacred, you know, it's very hard in the mainstream to raise any question about capitalism. And here we have us, if we, if you buy even a quarter of our argument, you say you're, you're playing with a system, which is the most dangerous system people have ever created. And we're showing why when, and the book goes into some historical and analytical detail to say why there is this intrinsic connection between capitalism and climate change and not just climate change, but other forms of biodiversity crises that, you know, every day different species are dying. I, I'm an animal lover. I have a dog. I lost a dog recently, which is one of the most grievous things that's happened to me. We're collectively losing our dogs, you know, our animals. When I, when I was talking about expanding, you know, into all areas, what we're doing is expanding into areas which animals have typically have been able to live in without being assaulted by humans. This is, of course, part of the pandemic um, risk as well. But these connections between capitalism, climate change, and militarism are really, really important for people to understand. Because once you think about these issues, it changes the way you think about the kinds of movements that we need to stop this whole madness from continuing. Because you have to be able to intertwine. It's not just a matter of stopping the insatiability of uh, or the fetishism of commodities. It's, a, it's a, a broader set of issues. Absolutely. And I'm so glad that you did put it in that context. Um, the part of the book that I think uh, certainly excited my interest the most, not that the other didn't, but how we do actually build movements to get out of this. And the fascist movement is strengthening in America. And uh, this is truly, truly terrifying. What is the way, both in the long term and the short term, that we can begin to overcome this, you know, the use of divide and conquer to promote fascism in this country and build solidarity, a true working class movement? Well, I wish I had a 100% answer for you and everybody. Everybody is thinking about this question. And I should say, the issue of fascism, it, I, I explore at great length. I have a new book coming out on democracy called Who Owns Democracy? And it goes into great depth uh, on fascism. In this book, I'm looking at capitalism. There's a very important relationship between capitalism and fascism, which um, maybe we can talk a little bit about. I actually argue uh, that American fascism, be, America was formed as a, a marriage between a neo-fascist Confederate slave state and a neo-capitalist Northern merchant capitalist state. The founding, it was like a, a somewhat troubled marriage between two deep states in a sense of neo-fascist Southern deep states. And the reason I call that state fascist was that it, it was based primarily on slavery, which was based on a caste model of power. Um, and fascism, that is what fascism is. It's a system that tries to sort of organize around the notion of biologically based power based on racial purity and racial power and, and 
so forth. Um, whereas capitalism is looks at class and organizes power based on class. And, you know, this marriage between in the South and the North lasted for about 75 years before it was like a, a troubled marriage that became very troubled. And we look at that in this book, we look at this period because I think the one way to answer your question of what do you do is you look at periods of history where people were able to do what appeared impossible. Like when the, we have a chapter on the lessons of abolitionism and, you know, during the the period of this troubled marriage, that was the, the fascist deep state and the corporate deep state, the North and the South, there was just a sense that, well, you, you're crazy if you're an abolitionism because human history has always had slavery. It's impossible to uh, ever stop this kind of caste system. And abolitionism was a very small movement and it built a fairly large constituency over 75 years. So we look at how that happened and it's it's an interesting story and it's it's relevant to our movements today. This is Writer's Voice, and we're talking with sociologist Charles Derber about his book, Dying for Capitalism. He co-wrote it with Søren Mudliar. So what are the key ways in which the abolition movement, what are some of the critical lessons that we can learn from the abolition movement and apply today? Well, one is it takes a lot of perseverance in the faith of what's in the face of what seemed to be overwhelming odds against you. I mean, it, it, you know, when L William Lloyd Garrison and Frederick Douglass escaped, you had it started as a very small and people said it was impossible. And what happened was that you had a kind of um, first of all, you sustained hope in the face of what appeared to be a hopeless situation, which is what a lot of people think the young people are feeling today. Um and that happened partly by virtue of the openness to um, very different kinds of groups with very different kinds of politics, finding ways to find common ground. I mean, for example, Lloyd, William Lloyd Garrison, who was a radical revolutionary socialist leader, very, very abolition, a New Englander, found common ground with, say, uh, Harriet Beecher Stowe, a, a woman who was from the middle class, very middle class, very moderate. Um, and this was, and she was bringing a kind of cultural sort of uh, approach to change. And um, Uncle Tom's Cabin became kind of a manifesto of the abolitionist movement. And it was very, very different than the politics of, say, either Frederick Douglass or or the, the probably the leading black abolitionist who... Um, and, you know, Frederick Douglass was interesting because he he spent a lot of his time as an ex-slave. He went to England. He 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 recognized the relation between the labor movement and the anti-slave movement. Um, and um, he he recognized the importance of joining together cultural strategies. For example, Frederick Douglass became the most widely photographed person of the 19th century. And he, he did that partly because he was realizing that images, cultural images, um, swayed people's politics and moved people's movements. And it got him into connection with a very wide range of constituencies. So, I mean, one of the lessons of abolitionism is that um, and there wasn't a single party. There were some people who were um, totally against um, the, joining the major power system. There were other abolitionists who joined, created their own parties or joined in with other parties. So there was a what what I take away from this is that there was a 
a very open approach that encouraged solidarity across many different kinds of both people, groups, and strategies of change, from economic change to cultural change, from revolutionaries like John Brown, who were going to burn things down, to um, very pacifist, you know, nonviolent people. There was somehow this movement came together around a kind of sense of emergency and moral urgency that is not irrelevant to what we're facing today. And it brought together, you know, people who did not become locked into fragmented, um, single issue kind of things. They, they, they brought together people from many, many different frameworks who found a kind of common moral um, a community uh, around the horrors of slavery and um, the sense of emergency that was coming into play as the Civil War became closer. And I just think that, yeah, that's it's a very fertile period. And people now who are terrified of um, fascism coming full tilt with Trump are spending a lot of time looking at that period of history and trying to understand how the Civil War happened, how it might happen again, and how we can take action to do, you know, to try to change this. This is, um, I mean, the fascism election issue, since we're talking in election year now, is really important because the dangers of fascism and um, of Trumpism as a political force um, are happening over and above, in a sense, these existential terrors that we're facing. I mean, in other words, climate change, even if we didn't have Trump, we would have an emergency around climate change in, in this country and the world. Even if we didn't have Trump, um, we would have an emergency around nuclear war and other kinds of weapons of mass destruction. Even if we didn't have Trump, we would have massive emergencies around the economic system, the extreme inequality, the pathology of billionaires um, seeking to exploit and plunder the planet for their own wealth, um, and the political power that they've been able to accumulate um, with the incredible concentration of money that they have. So we have a system that's an extinction system, even on top of no fascism, we would still be facing an emergency and we're just layering this on top. One, just one positive thing. I, I know if you saw this, Sean Fain, the UAW leader, just announced that on May 1st, 2028, that seems a ways away, there will be a, a general strike. All workers in the country will come together for a general strike, which had not happened in the United States. So the summer of strikes is also sort of a, a sign that the amazing number of systemic perils we're facing are not completely demobilizing the population. And he is such a hero to so many that, you yeah. know, I, I fear that if we wait till 2028, the moment will be over. I mean, I'd like to say Sean Fain for, for president, actually. Yeah, no kidding. And he is, um, I believe that the UAW is going to endorse uh, Joe Biden you know, Biden has his good points, but unfortunately, he has really weakened the kind of coalition that you're talking about because of his stance on Palestine. Right. You teach in a college. What do you think? Do you think that young people will come out and vote for Biden in spite of their anger at him for the stance he's taken on Palestine? This is a super important question, Francesca. It's, as I told you before we started talking, um, 
I'm doing a podcast exactly because of that dilemma. I think there's a real risk that young people and many others, I mean, even for me, I think it's urgent to keep Trump out of power for the obvious reasons we started to talk about around fascism and so forth, which is not a joke. It's worth noting that people normalized Hitler before Hitler and the the sort of powers that be in Germany, the conservative forces in Germany really felt he was just sort of a crazy, uh, Hitler was a crazy joke. He could be controlled quite easily by the conservative establishment and so forth. And I think both liberals and conservatives in this country have taken a little bit of this attitude toward Trump. Not everybody, I mean, obviously, but there are many people who need to be engaged in trying to stop Trump, who feel, well, Biden is so bad because of the war. And I understand this because I feel it myself. I understand that the Biden's militarism is so terrible that it becomes hard to support him. But if you look at the bigger picture and you recognize what a Trump administration would do in the Middle East, and particularly in regard to, for example, Palestine, let alone Iran or China and so forth, you realize that that is just one of many ways in which Trump would raise the ante and so forth. So I think the question of mobilizing, there is still a majority of people in this country. In fact, here's, here's a hopeful sign. Despite the unquestioned moral kind of embrace of capitalism by all the dominant elites in the country, major polling agencies have been polling Americans about their emotional reaction to the word capitalism and the word socialism. I don't know if you've followed this polling, but it's been going on for a number of years. And what it's showing is that there's a steadily growing plurality of Americans who are having a negative association to the word capitalism and a positive association with the word socialism. And if you take young people and a variety of other, you know, democratic sort of constituent bases, um, this is growing. And that is the favorability of some kind of alternative to capitalism in the polls is growing. And capitalism, I mean, even, you know, the far right has a long history of challenging Wall Street. And, you know, you hear people like Ron DeSantos and many Trumpists challenging corporatism and corporate power and so forth. So there is a large majority of the country that is, in fact, about 80 to 90 percent of people in the United States say that big money, co corporate power is the greatest threat to the world. They, they talk about them as globalists, global companies, but they recognize that there are a tiny number of people and companies that are making trillions, literally, of dollars, where the great majority of people are their livelihoods are in peril and their lives are in peril. So, I mean, it's not utopian to feel that there is a way to to navigate toward reaching people who feel this way. And one of the problems I feel, and I've written about this in several books, um, is that the left has played a role in losing the ability to speak to, for example, much of the white working class or to rural folks. And the reason is the way the left, the left since Clinton, basically the New Deal got abandoned, you know, after Reagan, basically, Bill, remember Bill Clinton made that famous phrase, the, the Democrat Party is no longer the party of big government. We are, they moved to globalization. And white working class people 
moved like in an emergency toward the Republican Party because they, they correctly understood that the Democratic Party was abandoning class politics and sort of a critique of the economic system in favor of more siloed identity politics, whether it was whether it's anti-racism or gender politics, all of which, of course, are important. But when they're, they're, or they're they become the basis of political organization in this way that I call siloed, meaning they they're each in their own silo. This is the very opposite of what happened during the abolitionist movement. But where these identity movements, again, you're seeing, for example, black movements moving in competition with Latinx movements or Asian American movements or you know women. I mean, this identity model has it's basically opened the door wide open for corporatism and for the Republican Party moving in and you know saying, oh, these lefties just think you're privileged white people because the left is no longer offering a conversation about capitalism and about the economic system, which is brutally abandoning large numbers, both economically and culturally. You know, white working class people have very good reason to feel angry and to feel this is where I think a lot of the critique of Trump's personality, as crazy as he is, is missing the underlying forces, which we talk about in this book about the capitalism itself, which are giving ordinary working people very good reason for abandoning the Democratic Party and for abandoning Biden, for example, right now. And so the book gets into that to some degree. And so in a funny way, the, it's not funny, it's tragic that the left or liberalism in many ways is fueling right-wing growth, uh, fueling the Trumpist kind of movement and fueling the fascism that it hates. And this happened to some degree in Germany in the 30s. Yeah, and, and contrast that, I think, with the huge popularity of Bernie Sanders' campaign, which actually... Mm-hmm brought together all those disparate points and talked about a multi-ethnic, a multicultural working class movement based on solidarity. It's not difficult to actually bring all those things together. And Marion Williamson, I heard her the other day on Democracy Now!, you know, her message is very much like Bernie's in that sense. She says, we really have to base this on a politics of love, by which she means solidarity, and that the only way to counter the hate is with love. I wonder what you think of that. Well, I, I agree with the way you framed it just before you mentioned Marianne Williamson, that, that the in 2016, you may remember that Bernie Sanders did very well. He was brought back in the primary elections in Michigan and Wisconsin and in the, in the, where the effects of outsourcing and globalization among steel workers and auto workers and all that was greatest, Bernie ran up big margins in those states. Um, the corporate Democrats pushed him out. And it, it's very similar in a way. Uh, it's always interesting to imagine what would have happened if corporate Democrats when Roosevelt was running for the fourth time, people knew he was going to die. And would Henry Wallace, a socialist, he was a logical choice. Eleanor Roosevelt wanted him to be president. The corporate Democrats mobilized. They were afraid of Wallace and for good reason at the time, because Wallace would have run a very different country than um, and probably would have might have avoided the Cold War. And Truman was much more of a militarist and much more willing to sort of, you know, live with the corporate system than than the New Deal. And so I think that's the thing that's happening 
the danger today is that um, the corporate, you know, that money plays such a central role in the Democratic Party as well as the Republican Party. And, you know, liberals are so tied to foreign policy ideals and to capitalism in a very general sense, even though they want reforms. And as you say, Biden did some good things in his first two years that I didn't anticipate. He he moved a little bit away from the kind of neoliberal push for that the Democrats have been embracing since Reagan and since Clinton uh, and Obama also. It's important to remember that under the Obama administration, the racial gap between blacks and whites grew and the gap between rich black people and poor black people grew under Obama. This is not to try to desecrate Obama, but to say that neither Clinton nor Obama, the two Democrats after Reagan, who really put a, pulled America away from the New Deal and a kind of a class economically oriented politics, neither of those two Democratic presidents did much to try to move it in the opposite direction. And that's why so many workers, the most important, in my view, the most important political phenomena driving the possibility of fascism and of extinction is the movement of so many working class people away from the Democratic Party because they don't feel the Democratic Party is speaking to their needs. And they're right about that. Um, Biden was a little bit better. He began to use a more massive public goods approach. In the book, Dying for Capitalism, we argue at the very heart of capitalism, like I say, is the idea that everything is for sale. So it's all commodities. Everything is produced as a commodity society. And we introduced the idea of saying the alternative to that is a public goods society. In other words, what it, that's a language that's not very familiar to people, but public goods are things that are produced not for profit, but for public well-being. And the New Deal, Roosevelt during the Depression, was able to essentially use that as a message to encourage a lot of public spending on, you know, both on the environment, on um, jobs, on social welfare programs, and so forth. And so I think part of the problem is the need to move back away from this siloed identity politics toward a kind of economic politics that looks at public goods. Climate change is a public catastrophe. Nuclear war is a, that once you start using the conversation of not just a profit for the market, but for public goods, you can have a conversation about all these issues. So a lot of this book is about what it would mean and look like to create a society based on public goods. Well, that's a great place to end. Uh, the book is Dying for Capitalism, How Big Money Fuels Extinction and What We Can Do About It. Charles Berber, thank you so much for talking with us here about this very absolutely crucial topic. Thank you, Francesca. Thanks for having me. It was nice to talk to you. Charles Derber teaches sociology at Boston College. Next up, the state of the free press. We talk with Andy Lee Roth of Project Censored. Stay tuned after the break. Welcome back to Writer's Voice. I'm Francesca Rhiannon. Every year, the Media Literacy Project, Project Censored, puts out a yearbook of the previous year's most censored stories, along with a current analysis of the state of the media. We spoke with Andy Lee Roth, Project Censored's Associate Director, co-editor of 14 editions of the yearbook, including the current one, 
and a co-author of The Media and Me, A Guide to Critical Media Literacy for Young People. Let's listen to that conversation. Andy Lee Roth, welcome to Writer's Voice. Thanks so much, Francesca. You are the Associate Director of Project Censored, which has been putting out editions of the yearbook for a long time. You co-edited 13 previous editions. Before we get into the meat of this year's State of the Free Press 2024, I wanted to ask you, what are some key trends over the years that you've seen in relationship to the State of the Free Press in this country? Well, a lot has changed since the project was established in 1976. Uh, The media landscape is vastly different now than it was in the mid-70s. We've seen deregulation of media. We've seen increasing concentration of media ownership into the hands of fewer and fewer major corporations. We've seen, obviously, the advent of the Internet. Um, And maybe I'll pause on that point for a moment to say that although these are obviously fraught and in many ways grim times, I think it's very exciting to be doing work around media literacy and the work that the project does at a time when, in my opinion, there's never been more robust independent journalism in the United States than there is today. Now, I say that with caution. It's something to celebrate, but also something to, to protect and to be very careful of the forces that would undermine that reality. Um, And we can talk more about those as we get going, I think. Absolutely. But that is an encouraging note to, to begin on as well, and I think it's important to keep in mind. But this edition of Project Censored, uh, the State of the Free Press 2024, comes at a time when trust in journalism is at an all-time low. Why is that? Well, that's a complicated question. And I um, I think it's possible to have the right answer for the wrong reasons, if I could uh, project out to what drives some of that mistrust of journalism. On one hand, I think there's a lot about the corporate media that should be distrusted. The corporate media reflects corporate worldviews that don't necessarily also reflect the interests or concerns of everyday Americans. And so in that sense, there's a strong disconnect between what most people see and read as news on a daily basis and the kind of reporting we need to be engaged in communities and well-informed as uh, voters, right, in an election year. On the flip side, and I think it's important when you think about these polls that report back to us that trust is at an all-time low, One of my problems, my training is as a sociologist, and one of my problems with the polling data that, that, uh, or the the polling methods used to generate that data is that those polls typically do not differentiate between corporate news media and independent news media. And so, for instance, if you asked me, do I trust media in general, I would say probably I'd be among that majority that now distrusts that, you know, is on record as distrusting. But if you ask me, do I trust the reporting at Mint Press News? Do I trust the reporting from Truthout? Do I trust the reporting in these times? I would say an enthusiastic yes overall. 
Uh, there might be individual stories that I would quibble with or perspectives that I might want to argue. But so I think part of the problem with that polling data, and this goes back to that optimistic note I started on, part of the problem with that polling data is it asks people generically, do you trust uh, journalism in the U.S.? And it doesn't allow people to differentiate between, say, corporate news sources and independent news sources. Of course, we can't talk about the issue of trust in the U.S. without talking about how uh, the well was poisoned for years during the time that Donald Trump was president of the United States. And Trump and Republican allies of his uh, consistently villainized the press, stirred up public sentiment against the press, some of which, again, I think there are reasonable grounds to critique the corporate news media. But the idea that the press, that journalists in the United States are the enemy of the people is a scurrilous falsehood that, of course, plays on uh, rhetoric that was used by Adolf Hitler and others to discredit uh, the press in Germany as the Nazi party was coming to power. So we have to be very careful of uh, blanket critiques that villainize the press, even as Project Censored does. We try to provide a critical perspective on what the corporate news media do and fail to do. But that critique is different from a kind of Donald Trump critique because ours, our critiques are grounded in evidence and decades of media and uh, social scientific theory about how journalism works and its role in a democratic society. You know, there's so many kind of thorny issues here. You know, one of the points that is made in this edition of uh, Project Censored State of the, of the Free Press, this yearbook, is that partisan bias adds to the problem. And this is not just a problem on the right, but also on some of the left, what I might call the middle of the road or the corporate left. <laughs> For You know, I watch MSNBC because um, sometimes there's some very good stuff on there, actually. Very good reporting. But there's also a lot of very slanted reporting as well. So talk a little bit about partisan bias, and then I'm going to add in a little kicker to this, because you mentioned outlets like Truthout, Mint Press News, certainly there's Democracy Now!, as places where you get good journalism. And I agree. Now, they are all much more to the left. Is that because I'm just a progressive, or is it because reality actually has a progressive bias? Let me address the first question first, and then the harder question second. Does you know uh, does reality have a progressive bias? I love it. I think on the first question, a lot of what my work as a sociologist who studies news media focuses on is what we call news framing: how news frames our understanding of the world, what we should focus on, and how uh, we should understand those events. So, news in this perspective doesn't tell us what to think but it frames our understandings of what's important and how to think about those issues. From that point of view, the idea that most news frames reality for us in terms of team red versus team blue, right? Or liberals versus conservatives or the right versus the left. That is a standard news frame that an amazing array of stories are run through that frame. Obviously it makes some sense in an election year to talk about 
the two political parties as major frames for understanding news. But I'm astounded, I have to say personally, when I see reporting about what's happening in Gaza, what by all accounts now is, uh, if not genocide itself, certainly acts of genocide. And it's reported through the frame of how this will impact the election in the United States. I think that's important. But when we reduce, when we see the corporate news media reducing the significance of events on the ground in Gaza or in Yemen to their political consequences for the presidential election, you have to step back and say, that's a kind of media frame that encourages us to think in arguably the most narrow and least important terms. Does reality have a progressive bent? Maybe maybe you and I are singing in the same choir, but I, I, personally, I believe it does. Does Project Censored have a progressive bent? It's interesting. The project has been around, as I mentioned, since 1976, when it was founded by Carl Jensen at Sonoma State University in California. So that's a long run. We're now up to our 48th cohort of students at colleges and universities around the country now, now not just at Sonoma State, who are identifying and vetting and promoting public awareness of important but underreported stories. If you look at our story lists over that 48-year period, that's, you know, uh, we put out a top 25 story list every year. So we're up to 1,200 entries in that big database, if you allow me to talk about it in kind of sociological terms. And what you can see is it a lot depends on what party is holding power in the White House or in Congress at the time. And whatever party is holding power the project in its critical stance probably looks like it's supporting positions on the opposite end of the political spectrum or the other end, maybe not the complete opposite, but towards the other end, because the official narratives are what need to be questioned and held up to scrutiny. That's on a political uh, dimension. Of course, in the 21st century, it's not only political narratives that need to be held up and, and, and scrutinized using the critical media literacy skills that the project champions. Corporate narratives and corporate efforts to manipulate news to support corporate interests are also a concern, of course. So I think I remember an interview with Michael Parenti um, that addressed the question you, you asked, Francesca, where... Uh, Parenti said, uh, this was some time ago, and he was talking about the Bhopal disaster in India, the repercussions of which are still, you know, rippling outward, I think. And Parenti's line was, it's not my radical orientation that creates that story, right? That's a real story in the world. My, his radical orientation as a, a progressive journalist radical in the sense of getting to the root of things, that is. Um, my, his, you know, Parenti says, my radical orientation may lead me to pursue certain angles of that story, but that story is a real thing in the world. And so I would say the same uh, here, like the fact that massive numbers of people are out in the streets on a regular basis now protesting Israel's treatment of Palestinians in Gaza and elsewhere is a reality, right? The fact that there are, you know, there's a move on petition with over 500,000 signatures demanding Trump's disqualification, that's a reality in the world 
Now, whether the corporate news media report it or whether we have to turn to independent sources to get coverage of those protests or that petition uh, demanding his disqualification, that's where the kind of the media politics enter the picture. And uh, speaking of uh, the war in Gaza, as, as you alluded to it, story number two in the of the 25 top censored stories in Project Censored State of the Free Press 2024, Andy Lee Roth, is War in Gaza, Google, Meta, and Microsoft are hiring former employees of U.S. and Israeli intelligence agencies for senior positions. And that is by Alan McLeod of Mint Press News. It really illustrates what you're talking about, about bias and slant. Talk a little bit about that story. And and I just want to say it comes in context of what I heard just this week on Democracy Now! Uh, Jeremy Scahill reported about the Hamas beheading infant story that was actually spread by a former IDF person hired by the Wall Street Journal. So tell us about this second most top story in Project Centered. So Alan McLeod's uh, story is that former employees from U.S. and Israeli intelligence agencies are increasingly holding senior positions in big tech companies like Google, Meta, and Microsoft. And in those positions, they influence policy and control programs that effectively regulate our access when we're online to information. So the basic concern in a nutshell, and I'm simplifying some of the complexity of Alan's reporting here, For instance, as Google hires more CIA officers, will Google start to see the world and in effect think organizationally the same way the CIA does? This goes to a key issue that the project has been talking about for some time. Uh, The story is a great example of what we at the project call censorship by proxy, or at least this sets the potential for censorship by proxy. We have strong First Amendment protections in the U.S. against the government restricting freedom of the press, but the First Amendment does not restrict corporate manipulation. So when we see former CIA officials, for instance, taking positions at Google or Meta, Meta, of course, the owner of Facebook and Instagram, to name a few, What we see is the potential for government influence, government worldviews informing the corporate decisions of these big tech platforms that, of course, we're all dependent on for the flow of information, including news and our ability to express ourselves. So this is a very troubling story. The last thing I want to say about this story is a tip of the hat to Alan McLeod for how he researched this story. I think this is fascinating. And this goes to that importance of perspective, the idea that as a reporter, it's important not just to seek the truth and report it, but to have a critical sensibility. Alan reported this pair of stories using, among his sources here is the job networking website, LinkedIn. The people who have worked in U.S. and Israeli intelligence agencies are typically encouraged by those agencies not to shout from the rooftops that that's their background. But many of them, what McLeod found when he began researching this story, he was getting tips from people, sources of his who were insiders who said, like, you know, you should look into this. 
And so he he did. And one of the ways he looked into it was simply by looking for people who listed different agencies, intelligence agencies in their past work histories on their LinkedIn profiles. And he quickly found large numbers of these people. And so I think that sensibility of here, here's something he was hearing about because he has his ear to the ground and he's well connected. And here was a resource that allowed him to document in detail in a way that he could share publicly that this wasn't indeed just kind of an anecdotal situation, that there's something like systemic hiring practices at these big tech companies. The point is a close relationship between these intelligence agencies and big tech companies ultimately poses threats to our individual rights, our rights to privacy, our rights to freedom of expression, our rights to free speech, all of which are, are hang in the balance because of the gatekeeping role that these big tech companies now play in a, in a global digital era. And the gatekeeping role goes beyond hiring uh, people out of a certain, you know, uh, national security culture. Um, tell us about the Department of Homeland Security's Disinformation Governance Board. When you've got Project Censored in the title, um, there was an overnight impact on progressive media once that board started doing its work. Yeah, that's absolutely true. Now, uh, ostensibly, the Disinformation Governance Board was disbanded after there was public outcry from uh, the left and the right, it's worth noting, about its creation and the vague mandate it had to, you know, it sounds like something out of George Orwell's 1984, right, that we're going to govern disinformation or that a, a Department of Homeland Security in particular, is going to govern disinformation, however they define that concept. So this is reporting from Ken Klippenstein and Lee Fang at The Intercept, and they got internal documents showing what the discussions about this, you know, now officially disbanded program was going to do. This is something we had heard about. We actually reported on this in a prior censored yearbook. Uh, Mickey Huff, the project's director, and I wrote some about this in the introduction. But at the time that we were writing that yearbook, there was very little information about it. And these leaks that The Intercept reported, made public, helped us see kind of what the what the scheming was, for lack of a better term. So yeah, this is this is another example, I think, of how we can't be complacent in the United States and say, oh, well, since we have a First Amendment, right, since we have a host of Supreme Court decisions that protect freedom of the press, therefore, that's a problem for other people in other places in the world. And it's just not so. It's uh, true here when... You know, the sociologist in me is always interested in how symbolic boundaries are drawn and who gets to draw those boundaries, right? Who gets to draw, who gets to establish and police those boundaries? And so what counts as disinformation, right? You mentioned, and it's been well documented, that some of the changes that were made, for instance, by Facebook on its news feed back in like 2016, 2017, absolutely hammered progressive news outlets. And Mother Jones has done a tremendous job of documenting those impacts 
uh, not only on Mother Jones as an illustrious independent news outlet, but on other other less well-known independent news outlets. And so that gatekeeping role is something that I think people aren't aware of, even though it operates on a day-to-day basis at the level of, for instance, when we search using a search engine online, the algorithms that are operating to produce the results to when I search for, is the moon made of green cheese? or what's happening in Gaza, those algorithms are not neutral conveyor belts of information. They too are controlled and informed by uh, these corporate entities and their interests. And yet, (laughs) Facebook was the place where Cambridge Analytica was unleashed to promulgate an incredible amount of highly dangerous disinformation. I have recently put writer's voice on Substack like so many other writers. And, you know, within, I'd say, a month or two of being on there, I find out that there is no content moderation of extreme white supremacist and Nazi voices. So how do we balance the need to protect the First Amendment with the need to protect ourselves from the vilest kind of disinformation. Yeah. I think one of the frontline tools has to be the critical media literacy that Project Censored and other organizations like the Project Champion. And just to unpack that term, you know, when we talk about literacy, we're talking about the ability to access, analyze, evaluate, and critique. When we apply that to media literacy, we're talking about those skills in the realm of, say, how the ability to post things online or to critically evaluate a news story that you've uh, that a friend has shared on your social feed and when we add in the critical dimension to critical media literacy we're adding what for me as a sociologist is the emphasis on power right its distribution and its consequences so this is this is a, a more general statement of the kind of thing i was alluding to earlier when we talked about kind of the gatekeeping role of the media Uh, or its agenda-setting function. Power is also at the heart of media literacy that alerts people to the consequences of concentrated media ownership. You know, we know since Ben Bagdikian canonical book, uh, Media Monopoly, published in the early 80s and has gone through several editions since then, that more than 90% of all the media we consume is controlled by a handful of corporate entities. There's very little independent media. And the key question there to me as a sociologist is, if we have a lack of diversity in media ownership, is there also a lack of diversity in content? And I think for anyone who pays attention to the corporate news media on a day-to-day basis, the answer to that question is a resounding no. And you have a very narrow view of the world if you only look at corporate news which is premised on narrow conceptions of who and what count as newsworthy. But this is why I said at the outset that we live in a kind of a golden era of independent news media in the United States. There are meaningful alternatives to the kind of corporate hegemony, the corporate news media's narrow definitions of who and what count as newsworthy. And anyone who compares, say, Corporate news coverage, look at, say, CNN's coverage of what's happening in Gaza and contrast it with, say, what you can find at Democracy Now! or Truthout or Mint Press News, to name just a few that we've been talking about this today. 
you'll see stark differences, not just in what's reported, but in who's treated as a newsworthy source of information or perspective about those issues. And that broader inclusive definition of who and what counts as newsworthy is one of the hallmarks, I would argue, of, of independent news media. And that's that's a lot of what Project Censored and the State of the Free Press yearbook uh, is designed to champion and hopefully bring to people's attention for their support. And that makes a lot of sense. And in fact, I do want to go on to one of the very positive stories in the book. But before I do that, I do want to ask you, do you see no role for content moderation of, let's say, hate speech? Because, you know, because we have the kind of monopolized or oligopolized media landscape, most people are not going to be exposed to the mint press newses of the world or or even democracy now. I mean, most of the people I even know around me who count themselves as good liberal Democrats, they don't know about democracy now. So how do, you know, how do we treat the kind of speech that actually, actually can destroy us? Well, I think letting people know about those outlets is part of, it's certainly part of the project's mission. And I believe it's it's probably needs to be on the agenda for anyone promoting a progressive uh, politics because the stakes are too high. You know, for years when I taught introduction to sociology, I would ask students what news sources they paid attention to. And as I got to know them and they got to trust me, many of them would say, Professor Andy, I don't pay attention to the news. It's too depressing, right? It's not that I don't have time, it's it's too depressing. To which my response, being kind of a cheerleader for independent journalism, would be maybe you're reading or looking at the wrong kind of news. I think a lot of corporate news media is meant to discourage us, and specifically to discourage us from being active in anything other than the roles of consumers when it comes to the economy and voters when it comes to politics. And part, I think, of what independent news media models and shows people how it can be done and to what positive effect it may result is that there are other roles for us. There are other activities besides consuming and voting. And so let's um, go to one of those good news stories, actually, underreported stories. It's the one about unions that unions won more than 70% of their elections in 2022, and their victories are being driven by workers of color. Tell us about that story as we go out here. Yeah, thank you for framing this as a solutions story, right? Uh, and it's worth noting, all the stories on our list can be found not only in the book, but also on the website of the project at projectcensored.org. So any story that we've talked about that you want to read and see in more depth, there are resources there. This is definitely a good news story. Um, people may be scratching their head and saying, but wait, I'm hearing all the time in the, quote, mainstream corporate news media about Starbucks and even maybe about people at Tesla uh, workers at Tesla organizing or people at, you know, name the specific outlet. What's missing from the corporate news coverage of this is the outsized role that has been played by workers of color in union growth and that the geographic areas where unions are adding members are actually in the south and the southeastern parts of the country, not areas thought of as hotbeds of organized labor. 
So corporate coverage of recent union successes has rarely emphasized those elements and also has often failed to put the current union resurgence of union activity in uh, proper historical context. Um, that critique noted, this is a great, I think, if you if you're concerned about economic inequality in the United States, and if you're not, I think you haven't been paying attention, um, or you're one of the 0.1% who are doing very, very well um, in this current economy, um, this is great news, right? Um, the, we, we know when we look back historically, for instance, that unions helped build a burgeoning middle class in this country. Um, that's a complicated issue, of course, and I can't do justice to the full kind of analysis of it now. But this is a good news story. And it's a good news story that by and large, the corporate news media have missed some key points when it comes to covering it. Well, that story and 24 more, actually more than 24, is in this wonderful 2024 edition of Project Censored State of the Free Press the top censored stories and media analysis of 2022 to 2023. Andy Lee Roth, it's been a fascinating conversation to talk with you about this book. Thanks so much for featuring Project Censored and State of the Free Press. Uh, Francesca, I would love to come back and talk with you some more another time. Maybe next year. Sounds great. And as we are doing until a permanent ceasefire in Gaza is declared, we read a poem by Palestinian poet Moseb Abu Toha from his book, Things You May Find Hidden in My Ear. This one is On Gaza Seashore. On Gaza Seashore. I convince myself that a palm tree never bends, nor do its dates rot. I imagine the sky only occupied by birds and swollen clouds. I walk alone along the beach and never fear getting drenched by the cold, silent waves. Should you find me asleep, be sure I am either dreaming of roses and doves or staring into the void beneath me. I will dress in my rosy suit and walk to the port, even though I know no ship is arriving. My hope is that you will come flying to me on your tireless wings. I will collect seashells and pebbles to build a house for us on the beach until you come. I don't know how many houses I will have built before you come. I'm afraid I will rebuild Gaza by then. That was On Gaza Seashore by Mosab Abu Toha. That's it this week for Writer's Voice. Go to writersvoice.net to listen to or download past shows, plus find out more about our guests or read book excerpts. I'm your host, Francesca Rhiannon. <laughs>